Hi, my name is Chris Brennan, and you're listening to the Astrology Podcast. This is episode 246, and in this episode, I'll be talking to astrologer Darby Costello about the astrology of the four elements earth, air, fire, and water. Uh, hey, Darby, welcome to the show. Thank you, Chris. It's nice to be here. It's nice to see you. Yeah, I'm excited to do this episode with you. I've been wanting to do an episode on the four elements for quite a while now, and last year I discovered that your books on the subject or your book on the subject, which was a ser initially a series of lectures that you did in the mid-90s yeah. on the four elements, was recently republished just last year in 2019, right? Yeah, yeah, it was. Um, Tony Howard did it. He republished them beautifully, I think. I love the, what he's done with them. Yeah, yeah, I love the new covers. So volume, yeah. volume one is titled um, Water and Water Fire, and the Fire. Astrological Elements, book one. And then uh, the other one is Earth and Air, the Astrological Elements, book two Yeah. Uh, uh, by Raven Dreams Publications. So this is originally, though, a publication that you did in the mid-1990s for the Center for Psychological Astrology Press, right? And that's what they looked like then, hardbound. Brilliant. Okay. With, with gold letters. Yeah, Liz's publication, Liz's publishing house. Yeah. And, and you had an interesting story behind that because she kind of encouraged you to publish those books? Yeah, because I had tried. I'd been living in Africa and I came here and everybody was had published books and I couldn't write. I just, I just couldn't. I tried and tried and tried. And she said, I'm starting a publishing company. Um, and I'd like you to write a book for me. And I said, oh, I can't, you know, I'm just, I can't, I don't know how. And she just said, oh, 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 do it for me. And I really liked her. So I said, okay, that was, it It allowed me to step out of myself. And then I said, oh, what am I going to do it on? I don't know. And and the first one, she said, well, you're always talking about the progressed moon, do it on that. And so that was the first one that I did. And then I got into it and I really enjoyed the fashioning of sentences slowly. Mm. And and they were transcripts originally. But again, I said to her, but I just babble and talk and talk and talk. As you can tell, I don't have punctuation. And she said, well, take the transcript and then reshape it. And so in a way, it's a conversation between me and somebody call, I call audience. Mm. And sometimes it is the audience, but sometimes it's just a conversation that almost I'm having with myself in some way, a dialogue. You know, between myself and and someone else, and um, so in the end, it was very. They were very satisfying to do, and of course, I love the elements and always have. I've always been in love with them, right yeah. since the beginning. And that's something I love about the Center for Psychological. Those old publications is that they're sort of transcripts or dialogues, which yes. makes me think of reading some of these old, like ancient Greek texts, like Plato or something, which yeah. are written in the form of dialogues. Yeah. So just to introduce you to my audience, for anybody that's not familiar with your work, uh, what's, your, what's your background in astrology or, or when did you start, how did you get into it? I did a degree in, at a Catholic university in America in philosophy, psychology, and theology. And I was going to go on to do a master's and onwards, you know, as one did kind of thing. But mm -hmm. I went to California and it was the 60s. And I sat around with some people, and we, as we did in the 60s, and somebody started talking about astrology. And mm -hmm. I sat with some guy, I don't remember, and we, we sat there for nine hours trying to figure out how to draw up a chart. We just sat at that table, and at the end, we figured it out. And at some point, I went back to Massachusetts because I said, this is really interesting. They were talking about it, really interesting. 
And he said, but in Massachusetts, you'll find the best teachers. So go back there. And so I did. I went back. And I think um, I, got, I went back in 1968. And in 69, I started. Um, wow. And I didn't, I didn't realize that I was going to do that. I still thought maybe I could just have it as a little hobby. But I read Dane Rudyard's Pulse of Life. It was called, I think he renamed it or something. And I sat in a field. I think it was in New Hampshire. I mm -hmm. sat in a field and I read the book. And I went back in to the group of people I was staying with, weeping, because I knew I couldn't go on in ordinary conventional world. I had to study astrology. And then I found wow. Isabel Hickey and Francis Sarkoyan and Lewis Acker and got obsessed. Meantime, making money by working in the psychiatry department at MIT. So that wow. it was a kind of interesting mix. And I became completely obsessed and completely in love in so 69 and 70. So you're from Boston originally and yeah, near, 1960, Boston. near yeah. Boston and yeah. 1968, 1969 is when astrology has just exploded. And there's a ton yeah. of people from your generation that were born, people Absolutely. born in like the 1940s that are all getting into it at the, around yeah. that, that same time. Absolutely. And you find yourself actually in a sort of hotspot for astrology at the time because you mentioned yeah. Isabel Hickey and, and she was one of the major astrologer, or it seems like a number of major astrologers ended up studying under her or, or being sort of coming into contact with her at different points in some way. Yeah, she was, she, I, I went back to Boston and I, I knew a couple of people and I said, I need, I need a job, a bicycle and a roommate who's interested in astrology because I'm here to study astrology. And my oh. friend said, oh, I work at MIT and I did, I'm leaving to go off to California. So take my job if the, the head psychiatrist like you and, and you can have my bicycle. And then she introduced me to a, a young astrologer and, 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 and somebody got me an appointment with Isabel Hickey. I remember it was $10, it cost $10. And she looked at my chart and said, you should be an astrologer. And I thought, oh, because other people in California had said that. And I thought, is that what they all say? Good heavens, you know, what is this about? And she said, but I can't, but she was respectable, you know. And mm -hmm. she said, um, but I, I'm not teaching in the summer. So go to Francis Sarkoyan and Lewis Acker in the summer and then come to me in September. And what I didn't know is they weren't friends. Mm. But what she was doing was keeping me there. And so I went to Francis and Lewis. And then I started with her in September and, and had them all for a period of time. And they were all, they all, they were, you know, what you would do is you'd come into a, the basement or wherever it was, you know, I think it hers was, and you'd sit down and you'd say prayers. And one of the things I remember is she said, you, you were all in Atlantis and you didn't pay attention. Now, when you learn astrology now, you pay attention. You're very responsible. You pay, pay attention and you don't let that happen again. And whether she was speaking metaphorically or literally, I don't know, but I remember thinking, get, having a sense of responsibility that was so powerful about how we would use this and how we were there to guide people in a particular way. You know, I was young and, sure. um, but it was, it was very powerful. They were, they gave us a spirit, a sense of our own, connection to something um, very that we had great responsibility and had to be very very responsible to the people whose charts we looked at sure so so that's a specific stream of like modern astrology of like the Isabel Hickey school the Francis Sequoyan and Lewis Acker who also yeah. wrote very popular books on astrology around that time later. yeah a bit um, later. but then yeah. 
but then you're also getting into Young or getting into um, Rudyard, and and through Rudyard, of course, there's a lot of influence from Young, yeah. and then you gravitate or move more towards psychological astrology, right? Well, I didn't know what I was doing really. I mean, I had a psychological background in one way, but I mm. went to Africa after I finished, after I'd been studying for a year and a half. I went to Africa and one of the and stayed there for twelve years, and was living um, with tribal healers for most of that time and and working with them, recording and transcribing their stuff. And the, one of the first people I met was a Jungian a person passionate about Jung. She ended up going and becoming a Jungian analyst in Zurich. But at the time she was just loved Jung. And so we read Jung together the whole time. And I don't know that I'd really gotten into him until I met her. And then I really got into it. And I wasn't any, I didn't know, I was just doing charts. It just, and I was using re a lot of reincarnational ideas because Isabel had that very, very strongly. But mm. over time, because I was doing charts for people, everyone, anyone, you know, who asked me. Over time, I stopped using the reincarnational imagery and I started using psychological imagery more, but almost of my own kind, not a specific, this kind of psychology, just from all of the things I'd read, you know, mm -hmm. I was reading. Yeah. And then okay. um, I read Liz books arrived down there and um, I started reading those and I started thinking, this person is really interesting and ended up when I came up here ended ending up, you know, um, being part of the CPA once it got going. So that was lovely. So once you moved to the UK or moved to London, you eventually got integrated into the Center for Psychological Astrology? Once it started, Howard and I in Boston were very close. Um, I think he and my sister were roommates or something. We were all hanging out together. And Howard Sesportis. Howard Sesportis. And so while we were studying, Natalie, my roommate, and I, he he came over and hang ar hung around, and we just had long conversations, a lot of conversations. And when I left and, and went to Africa, he said, he he wrote it in a book, so I'm not saying anything he would mind, but he said. Um, those conversations have been really interesting. I'm going to England and I'm going to study astrology. And he came over and really studied, you know, studied it with the faculty and all everything. And then he and Liz became friends. And so through, I think it might be through him that I met her when I came over once and we sat and talked for hours and hours. And when I eventually came over for good in 71, then, um, I, sorry, in, in 83, I went to Africa in 71, in 83, mm -hmm. After a while, I contacted her again, and we started talking again. And then, when they started the school together, they invited me to join. That's interesting because didn't she study briefly under Isabel Hickey as well? So you could have crossed paths, but just didn't back in Boston. She did a year. I think she was there a year earlier than me, or okay. a year or two earlier. And then she went to California, but I never saw her in California. I never met her there. So we were all hanging around in the same streams, but some of us met and others didn't. You know. Right, and I remember I remember reading her books and thinking this person, this person has hit something. And I I was I'd never it was like reading for me when I read Dane Rudyar I wept with the beauty of it, and when mm. I read her I had chills with how she was talking. It was like this conversation, this language I understand so well. You know, she right. does speaks it so beautifully. So, but you develop Brilliant. in those days. We each developed our own version of things. You know. Mm. Like, and we didn't have something we were 
down, downloading a particular, we were just reading everything we could and experimenting and playing with everyone. And every, every time you, I still do every single time I watch someone on TV, I look up their charts. You know, mm. if I read about someone in the paper, I look up their charts. If I meet someone, I have a conversation with them. I get their date of birth. It's just an automatic thing that started then, you know, and carries sure. on. Um, so, so eventually in the 90s, you decide to focus on the elements at some point and you present, it started out as like a series of lectures or something on the elements, right? That's right. Yeah. I, Liz would say each, or Howard, either one of them would say whoever, oh no, Juliet. Juliet was the administrator, Juliet Sharman Burke, and mm -hmm. she was the administrator. And then she would say, okay, what are you going to do? What do you want to do? And each year, each semester, we decide what we wanted to do. And I don't know, after the moon, I think, again, it was like, I, I just love the elements. They, they fascinated me. And so I thought, when she said, do you want to write another book? I thought, yeah. And I put water and fire together because for some reason, water and fire seemed, they're so not alike, but they're, they're alike in a particular way, an imaginal way to me and earth and air seem more of the same, I don't know quite how to say it. They just, they seem to me right together. Like water is, they, they, water and fire have images, you know, and they're, they're, uh, and they're, they come from feeling and passion. And so I had to put water and fire together. And it was interesting because water, I think, took me three months to write. Oh, no, sorry, fire took me three months to write. And I mm. can't remember water. And I can't remember air, but earth took me a year to write. Oh, wow. Took, because I couldn't, I, I thought, I can't write the same thing everybody writes about earth. I, you know, earth. And I, I had to go to a place that, that I knew earth in another way. But it took mm. me a year because I, it took so long to articulate what I was seeing when I was in earth. Whereas fire just went, da -da, you know, like that. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, brilliant. And one of the things I like is that you really tried to go back to some of the source, early sources, and maybe that's where we could start is yeah. in early Greek philosophy and like pre-Socratic philosophy circa the 6th and 5th century BCE. Yeah. That's really where the story of the elements, at least in the Western tradition, kind of yeah. begins more or less, right? With different yeah. philosophers trying to posit yeah. That there's some sort of underlying principle or some principle underlying the the universe. Yeah, um, I'm I I'm slightly. This is, sounds like I'm deviating, but I'm not. But I love I work on with historical cycles a lot. And mm. in the fifth century BC, um, for a period of time, I think it's 444 to four. Uh, I don't know, 28 or something. I'm sorry, I've got, I can't. But anyway, it's that period. The, uh, Pluto's in Capricorn and Neptune is in Pisces. So when I started looking at the, these historical periods, Pluto and Capricorn, Neptune and Pisces, six times in the last 3,000 years, when I got to that period, there was Empedocles. And, mm. and, and it wasn't, I, I don't think it's before him. You know, I think what I love about each of these periods is, the the way that we've seen things collectively together is starting to break down or melt down or collapse and a new articulate a new way of seeing collectively is arising somehow and in this period there's anaxagoras and he says nous everything is nous you know all, all from the gods down to the stones is this this word he uses 
mind or something, whatever you want to call it. And he gets in trouble so much that he's going to be executed for heresy. And Pericles saves him, you know, and gets, and then he has to leave town and then he learns to square the circle and all of that. But at the same time, Empedocles is saying these, that everything is fire, earth, air, and water. And these four roots of, of, and I think he says all mortal things. I don't think he says immortal things. I think it's all mortal things. He says are, are separated and articulated by Nikos, uh, strife, let us say, and blended and brought together by philia, by love. So love and strife, you can use those two words, are the ones that move them all around in different relationships to each other. Now he doesn't get into trouble, whereas Anaxagoras does. And I think it's because he behaved as if he was, he was very eccentric. Mm. And he didn't act like, I am a philosopher and I am teaching you things. You know, you are learning things. I am from the Pythagorean tradition and we are take ourselves seriously. He sort of acted really strange. And so he got away with it. Mm. And how is it that he said these four things and they never, they went so powerfully. They just went down through history and everyone after them talked about them. Um, I think it's Plato who said they were, called them elements. But right. like letters, letters or something. I, yeah. So, so Empedocles is calling them like roots. Yeah. Uh, but then eventually Plato takes over the idea from Empedocles and starts calling them elements that's using right. the, the same word that's used to refer to a letter of the alphabet. Yeah. Because a letter is like the smallest component that makes up words and sentences. That's interesting. Yeah. I think I know. I know more about Empedocles' work on it than I know about Plato's. I mean, I just, because we've been talking about this for a few days, I thought, oh, I must look at Plato, but I didn't have a chance somehow. Mm -hmm. So I don't know what else he said about them as, as much as I do about, you know, Empedocles is clearer for me. Sure. Well, let's yeah. stick with Empedocles for a little bit. So, so Empedocles is taking over some ideas from the earlier pre-Socratics that you're talking about. So there's yeah. Thales who says, says that everything is water or the under the principle underlying everything is water and there's yeah. an exenemies who says it's air and there's yeah. heraclitus that says it's fire fire but, that's the, right. but then empedocles comes in and says no there's four yeah. underlying principles and these four roots are earth air fire and water and they are like you said continuously being articulated by these two opposing qualities of love br that brings things together and strife yes. that pulls things apart Yes. And our, what I like, I read that, I don't know where I read this again, it's a while ago, but that strife separates and articulates them. Mm. That's, okay. I think that's really interesting because the, uh, and, and, and love or philia brings them together and blends them. I, I like the notion of that articulation. And I don't know if that's in one of his fragments, you know, it might be because, you know, we get his fragments periodically. Um, Empedocles. Is he the one that then brought in earth? Because I, I don't remember anyone before that saying earth. Did he add earth, do you think? Um, yeah, I think so. At least the, yeah. the other major ones were just water, air, and fire. So yeah. maybe Empedocles maybe. was the one bringing in that fourth. Yeah. And I think in other cultures, they were coming in too. But again, I've just, I get interested in something and I've just started um, looking at that. I think other cultures were talking about those fire, earth, air, and water, and then something else as well, a fifth element as well, 
high yeah, I mean, I, th- I think, you know, in like Chinese medicine, they have like wood and metal or something like that. Mm. Um, but That's this right. is one of the instances where certainly in the Western tradition and in terms of Western horoscopic astrology, this is one of the areas where it was definitely influenced in a very specific way by um, Greek philosophy and some of the, the trends within Greek philosophy in the first few centuries BCE. Yes, yes. And then it goes down and, and gets in later, it gets mixed up with the temperaments as well, uh, caught up. And I mean, the thing that what happened is, I mean, like, I don't like, I don't like boxing things and putting them in boxes. So, you know, mm-hmm. oh, there you are air, therefore you are sanguine. Ah, you know, somehow I like the, the notion of them together, dancing together in a way, mm-hmm. but that you are this because your son is that. I, I, I can't do that somehow. Sure. Yeah. And also, yeah. Yeah. So let's get there then in terms of talking about the qualities because that will bring us through the rest of the history. So we have, so Plato takes over the idea and he talks about it in the Timaeus and he associates the elements with geometrical shapes and specifically interesting the shape of a triangle which is interesting because somebody later took that idea of the elements being associated with triangles and applied that to the zodiac to each of the triangles uh, or uh-huh. the triplicities, which are yes. the groups of signs into three, uh, four sets of three. Yes. And, and who who does that? Um, somebody specifically does that. Um, who says um, Aries? You know, Aries, Leo, Sag, uh, Fire. Um, but I can't remember. Is it Porphyry? Is it that? Is it later like that? That he they're they're literally, or gallons or somebody? Is it? Yeah, I think what happened actually because I published a paper in 2012 where I think I was the first person to ever point this out to show how the four elements came to be assigned to the signs of the zodiac because that's one of the mysteries is that not all authors did assign this the elements the signs of the zodiac let me share a diagram just so okay. people watching the video version know what we're talking about so this is the traditional yeah, for basically most most of the past 2000 years these are the assignments where you have the three fire signs which are mm-hmm. aries leo and sagittarius Sag, yeah the earth signs which are taurus Virgo and Capricorn. Yeah. The uh, air signs, which are Gemini, Libra, and Aquarius. Yeah. And then the four water signs, or the water triplicity, as it's called, which is Cancer, uh, Scorpio, Scorpio, and Pisces. Yes. So um, some ancient Hellenistic authors, or Greek authors basically, who wrote in Greek during the time of the Roman Empire, some of them start mentioning this scheme, like Vadius Valens mentions it, and Rhetorius of Egypt mentions it. But other famous authors like Claudius Ptolemy don't mention Doesn't, it. No, not at all. Yeah, that's um, interesting. But I think I was able to trace it back through this paper on the planetary joys um, to whoever came up with the triplicity rulership scheme, which is like an alternative system for assigning rulers over certain signs of the zodiac. Whoever came up with that scheme seems to have introduced this association. Um, so the the title of the paper that I wrote on this was the planetary joys and the origins of the significations of the houses and triplicities. Mm-hmm. It's too complicated to get into here, but it probably means that sometime around the first century BCE, there was a Hermetic text that first came up with these assignments and proposed them, mm-hmm. and some astrologers in- incorporated the concept and embraced it, and other astrologers 
were kind of standoffish and didn't incorporate it. But eventually, after the medieval period, it became a universal, commonly accepted concept. Yes. And it's really interesting. It's once it's in you, it's hard not to see it that way. You know, I mean, like, I remember, um, where was I? It, was it in Joburg? Maybe it was early days of, jo of being in Johannesburg in the 70s. And I remember walking down the street with a guy, and he had six planets in fire, he told me. He had mm. three in Sagittarius and two in Leo and one in Aries, da, da, da. And I remember, and he was talking and talking, ah, he was telling me about things. And I remember feeling that fire so powerfully. Mm. And then later in the evening, I spent time with a woman, and she had something like five or four or five planets in water. And I remember just the difference of the feeling. And I remember thinking about that fire. I can I don't I don't remember anything about him except the feeling. I know I was in Durban. I was I I was I was visiting someone in Durban. I can remember walking along the street. And and I remember thinking, if you have all that fire, you must find a way to bring it down. I remember thinking that he's got to be able to bring it down. And I worried for him because there was so much passion and so much vision and so much what I what I think about fire is the uh, the I said, you know, Henri Corbin, he talks about the imaginal plane. And yeah. at the highest level, it's the, 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 for me, fire is, is the connecting to that imaginal plane, which is beyond air. Air articulates it if it can, you know, but, but it's the, as close as you can get to that which is beyond the density of time and space. And mm. I remember those six planets in fire and being worried about him because I, I thought, how is he going to bring it down to be able to manifest it in something that is, um, I don't know, denser in some mm -hmm. way, you know? And then the evening, being with that water person, the feelings of when I left, I felt as though I'd been in 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 the ocean for hours and hours, and I could, f and I loved the difference of the feeling of the two. And she felt safer to me, even though she was very depressed and for you know some of it. But she was so there with herself in a particular way. And so I've I've always thought when you have a lot of one, the work is how you how you bring it into how you connect it up with something else, whether comfortably or uncomfortably, so that you're not just in that plane, you know, in that in that dimension somehow. They feel like dimensions to me in some sure. way. Yeah. So so I guess what the concept is, if we we're trying to explain it to somebody, is that there's a a commonality or a similarity between these group groupings of three signs of the zodiac mm -hmm. and that they have this underlying quality or what was the term that you just used? Uh, um, I said a dimension. They're, they're a dimension, yeah. They have like an, a ener a, an energy field. They're like a sure. different uh, different energy fields in a way. Well, especially when you're talking about fire. As soon as you say fire, I think of an energy field. Um, but there are different dimensions of re of reality that express themselves in what I what I lately call the density of time and space. And fire seems the closest to beyond that density. So that if you think of somebody like Teresa of Avila, she's got Sun conjunct Uranus in Aries in the first house and mm -hmm. Venus in Pisces in the 12th. And the combination of that fire and water took her to places 
that she almost would rather not have gone. You know, they were so, uh, so un unconventional, let us say, or, un or, or not. With the, uh, yeah, they took her to these other places of, of ecstasy. And I, and I think fire can take you to these places of, of ecstasy because they're, they touch that, that space beyond, you know, but then you have to find how to, how to live here with that when you have, when you have lots of fire or when people have lots of fire. You know? I'm thinking of a friend of mine in Joburg and he's got one, two, three, four, five, five or six planets in fire. And when he phones, or when we speak to each other, and we still do after being away for however it's forty years or something now, um, but we still speak. I have to wait for the first uh, ten minutes for him to, <laughs> you know, tell me all the, and then and then we can have a conversation somehow, mm. you know. And I love the places he goes, you know. Uh, right, because fire kind of um, can come alive very quickly um, and burn up and become very bright. Yeah. But then it can also kind of burn out quickly if it's not fed or sustained yes. continuously. Its inherent tendency is to go to flare up quickly and and burn bright and then to die out quickly. Yes, and to and also it gets so close to that other space and coming back down into the density, like like the world is a very, in a very um, transitional, disturbed space at the moment. So at the moment he's talking about uh, you know. He, He's not, and he 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 keeps saying, "Why don't people? Why don't people? And 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 why don't people live at this level of beauty and you know and and joy?" And he, he finds it so difficult the the kind of crawling density of of all these planets and Earth that we're having to deal with somehow. Mm. Yeah, but he's a okay. painter and a wonderful painter, and that keeps him sane. You know, he can bring the vision down with his paint. And I think when you have fire, you've got to have a place to be able to manifest that which you, you, you have to bring it somewhere to, to either to, you have to, through earth perhaps, or through air. And I'm not sure, I'm not through, I'm not sure through water. I think they're very similar and that they have to be connected to something else to function in a way that's, that's okay, if I put it that way, you know, hmm. because they take you to a place that's so not rational and practical. You know? Okay. Yeah. Um, so, so that actually might connect with, so two other things in terms of just the historical development of all of this. Um, so after Plato, we get Aristotle, and Aristotle yes. <laughs> introduces some notions. One of them that's kind of relevant to something you were saying is the idea of natural place where he said that each of the elements has an inherent natural motion and an inherent natural tendency either to move upwards or to move downwards. Mm -hmm. And that those are the primary things that the elements do in terms of their inherent part of their inherent qualities. And that's kind of interesting in terms of what you're just saying, because fire is the one that has the tendency to rise up the oh, highest yeah. to the yeah. uppermost portions of the cosmos. Yeah. Uh, whereas air also rises up, but it then settles just below fire. Earth falls; it's the densest, and it falls towards the the bottom of the cosmos or the center of the cosmos. And then water also falls downwards, but it rests just above Earth because it's yeah. slightly less dense. Yes, 
And it's interesting because if I look at those like that, I immediately think air almost like has to articulate fire or it seeks to articulate fire, perhaps. It's what the, do you mean by articulate? I think of air as always trying to understand things, trying mm. to find words for things, trying to communicate with things, trying to make it's it like like the difference between fire has fire comes in images, I think. Mm -hmm. And air seeks the, as far as I understand, the words to articulate the images somehow. And I'm, sure. and, yeah. And if I it's look at what, what, yeah, water and earth, it's a similar thing, but on a different level. What were you going to say? Yeah. So it's almost like um, fire and earth set up the two extremes, but then air is acting as an intermediary between the yeah. realm of fire and the. Yeah more grounded or right. solid, um, tangible world of, of water and earth, yes. whereas water to some extent is also acting as an intermediary between Absolutely. earth and the other two elements? Well, it, it, it was just as I've, you put them there, I thought it's like, I suppose um, I'm using old fashioned words um, and mm -hmm. I haven't got new ones for it, but like fire has is like listening to the spirit of things and air tries to articulate that or express it or describe it or something. And, and water has a feeling of this. It touches again, something beyond time and space. It touches into something, the soul of things, and then it's expressed through, or, or it mixes with earth in a particular way. And, and things are created and made literally, you know? So it's like the water is the soul of the earth. And the fire is the spirit of the air in some way, and that's why I think they're t they're similar. Fire and not similar, sorry, wrong. But they're these other dimensions, and they need to be expressed through one through air easily, and one through earth easily. Because what does water do with those feelings? I'm very close to water people, and and I'll say, but what are you feeling? And it's always like it takes time to be able to find out what they're to. To be able to express what they're feeling, because they have to go inward to f to get there somewhere. You know, mm. uh, water is not does not easily express that which is fundamental to it. This moving, this sort of constantly changing. You know, and when it gets too stuck, when it when it's not changing all the time, it gets stagnant. So, it, but how does it how does it come to terms with it? You know, so water and fire, in a way, are more difficult. If I can put it that way, they 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 have to find ways to express themselves. Um, right. One of the things that's interesting also about this, and maybe we should briefly digress on, is just the idea of what we're talking about here is these archetypal qualities, and this really goes back to the very idea of what an archetype is as life and like an overarching principle that's existing underneath reality or maybe above reality on some level, but that then lots of subconcepts are actually being derived from. And I can't think of any like broader archetype than the elements yes. um, in these four fundamental principles or qualities or roots. Roots, yes, it makes me, I love the. It's really interesting. Roots, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I just said something. I said fire and water. It's more difficult. I don't mean that if you have planets and fire and water, it's harder. But I mean they have to find places through which to express. Whereas it seems to me, earth and air naturally do it. It's it's the the articulation one in material things like this, you know, and mm -hmm. the other in the words that you and I are 
using. It's a natural thing to 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 make sense of them in a sense. Mm -hmm. But fire and water have to. The, the, it's almost as if they. What is it? Ah, they they have to come through something in a way. They they yeah and yeah. I, I'm how, going too far in my head. <laughs> how do you usually define like an archetype, or what's your conceptualization of an archetype? I, I know I thought about that earlier because I thought we we're going to talk about archetypes. God, mm -hmm. I mean, you tend to be more influenced by like the Jungian school in terms of that conceptualization of archetypes on some level, right? Is that is probably? That true? But but it's a long, long time now since I've been reading that. I you know I haven't been. I've been away from it in a way. Um, sure. I, and I might be wrong about this, but are the archetypes? I suddenly think I thought when earlier when we were speaking, I thought, do I really know what an archetype is anymore? Is it? It's like a sh a form of some kind that we, that we all return that we all recognize. Like I've right. lived in other cultures, very deeply in other cultures, mm. and there were certain things that were absolutely we recognized like beauty, you know, and we may have had different ideas about beauty, but we knew when somebody said that's beautiful, everyone knew that we were talking about something universal and mm -hmm. at a, an imaginal level. So I, I suppose it's to me an archetype is a, it's something that it's, what do I say? It's that which we all, we sh we shape differently through culture, but there's mm -hmm. certain forms that we that are part of our inner imaginal world, or no, part of our collective imaginal world. Sure, or even let's to give a more a less abstract example, like even like a tree, I think is a really common example, like yeah. that there is such thing as a as a tree or like the essence of a tree in our mind on some level, but the specifics of like what different trees look like. Maybe different, but they all share some sort of commonality. Mm -hmm. If you're talking ah. about the concept of a tree, oh, that's interesting. I, and also, like gods, deity, like mm. there's that's even more natural, almost like you know, everyone knows what that means, but how they artic how they specify that, and whether they like it or not, you know, nowadays mm -hmm. it's, the religion of atheism is quite big at the moment, you know, um, in our culture anyway. Um, and and but everyone knows what you're talking about when you talk about the gods or deity or yeah. Um, so so but something as 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 practical or as material as a tree, and yet something as far away as a god, those are archetypes. So archetypes are the form of things or something. Right. So the ultimate underlying, not abstract, but sort of a conceptual form that exists above something underlying all of the particular things that are manifestations of that form in the yes. material world. Yes. So, And I guess the point of that was just that I think there's no broader, the archetype is where of the elements, when you start getting into elements, it seems like you're getting into really high level archetypes of trying to take everything back to four fundamental qualities or principles mm -hmm. from which you derive just innumerable other yes. specific manifestations but that can also be one of the challenges sometimes in talking about the elements is they can be so fundamental or so so primary as archetypes that 
it can be difficult to articulate that because it's it yes. can be so broad in what it's explaining or what it's covering. Yes, because if you say anything too specific, it almost doesn't like I want to say like earth signs are fundamentally practical. And then I think mm -hmm. is that true? But an air sign can be practical in another kind of way. But mm -hmm. but it's hard not to automatically think earth when you've got earth signs it's practical. It, the, you know, there's a natural practicality. So th this morning in the garden, we have a communal garden, and on Monday morning, groups, a group of us in the community go there and keep it quite beautiful. And and we were talking about what's going on in the world, the virus, you know. And I I know all their charts. They don't know what that means, but I know their charts. And I was listening to the Earth sign being irritated by everybody going on and on about these this, you know, just deal with it. It's fine. Just deal with it. And the and the water sign saying, I'm not sure it's sort of, no. so each of them feeling differently or just expressing different tones about a collective thing and each having, and then the, the, the fire sign making a joke about it. So we'd stop talking about it. And, and just to get us out of there with his Aries moon, he just said, okay. And he said something funny and we all went off into a different direction. And so you can, when you know the the fundamental elements of people's charts, you can't. You don't have to remember the degrees or the aspects. You can hear the element talking, and it's it's very satisfying, I think, to hear that rather than saying what it is. You can just set. You can listen to it or watch it. You know. Mm. Yeah, and it's right. good to know it about the people close to you because when you when you're fiery and airy. And you want your earthy, watery partner to tell you what they're feeling. You have to know that they have to take time to do that, you know. And when the fire airy person is saying what they're feeling, the earth and water has to know how to slow them down so that you can have a, a communication. So they're very useful just as background information, I think. Sure. So both in terms of like self-reflection and understanding oneself and some of the the overarching archetypal qualities that might manifest more prominently in your own life, but also yes. in understanding as an access point for understanding other people and what their motivations or tendencies might be. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just a it's a sense, not an analysis. It's not like, oh, he is doing that because it's a you you get it, you can get it as a it's like looking at a tree or looking at birds. You know, they're they're both different and they're and looking at a, a listening to a water person and then listening to a fire person on the phone too, totally different energy, you know. Mm. And and it helps it helps to be less judgmental when you have that sense of who they are. You know, I'm always fascinated when I meet people and I'll say, you know, about your friend or your your Somebody, do you know their, you know, what's their chart? And oh, I don't know. I never look at people close to me. And I think, how do you navigate without, you know, knowing these things so that when they do something, you you can see that, that where they're coming from in a sense, rather than having a notion yourself about uh, how they should be somehow. Mm. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. Um. So let's back up a little bit and get into more of like the underlying qualities and talk about. Some of the core principles underlying each element, which maybe then we can apply to more specific delineations. One of the things that Aristotle did that was really useful is he said that because the elements are creating the perceptible perceptible bodies and like the world around us, 
that they should relate to one of the senses. And the sense that he ended up focusing on was the sense of touch. Um, and he ended up associating one of he ended up associating these four different qualities with each of the elements, which were the sense of um, hot, cold, yes. uh, wet, and dry. Yes. And there's a little bit of an issue because his views actually may have changed during the course of his lifetime, and by the time he died, some of his assignments were changed up a little bit by his primary student and and the guy that took over for his school, Theophrastus, and then the yes. Stoics and the Hermetic philosophers also followed these reassigned qualities. But those qualities are basically as follows, where it assigns the quality of hot to fire. Mm -hmm. That makes and sense. <laughs> it puts uh, fire in opposition to air, where it assigns in the Stoic and the Hermetic system the quality of cold. Like when you blow uh, on something in order to cool it down, or imagine like blowing out a fire or blowing mm -hmm. out a candle, for example. Um, and water was given the primary quality of being wet or That's being um, moist, yeah, which is pretty yeah. straightforward. That, yeah, hot, those two, hot, fire and water, are pretty straight. Yeah. Yeah, and then earth is given in opposition to water the primary quality of being dry or drying things. So um, this then gets assigned very literally. So this is already in like Stoic philosophy by the third and fourth century BCE. But then somebody in the first century BCE, when they were creating um, the different components of what we associate with Western astrology and with birth charts, they took these assignments and then they literally put um, the signs of the zodiac in order so that the fire signs would be on the opposite side of the zodiac wheel from the air signs, and the water signs would be on the opposite side of the zodiac wheel from the, the water signs or the earth signs, opposite water signs. So what you end up with then is the fire signs such as Aries, Leo, and Sagittarius are all opposite, which, which are hot, are all opposite to the air signs, uh, which are cold. So air is Gemini, uh, Libra, and Aquarius. And then all of the earth signs, which are dry, are opposite to water signs, which are wet. So like Taurus is opposite mm -hmm. to Scorpio, uh, Virgo is opposite to Pisces, and so on and so forth. So it creates this natural um, tensions between the signs where they have each sign has its element with its quality, but then you have an opposing element with an opposing quality directly in opposition to it. Hmm, interesting. It just strikes me now without noticing. I was saying how my natural inclination is that um, air expresses fire more easily than any other sign does, and earth expresses water or, or connects with it or works with it more easily than any other. And I'm just noticing this. I wonder if it comes, you know, it's from because they're opposite each other and they seem to communicate with each other more naturally in a way. And yeah, exactly. I don't, yeah, I don't know about the hot and dry and all of that. I'm not sure about that. But the earth and water, fire and air makes perfect sense. They, yeah. Um, and there was actually in some of like the second century astrology, Vedius Valens, he says something very similar about this oppositional quality actually being helpful to each of the elements in some way. Um, and I'm trying to find that quote really quickly. Uh, 
yeah, actually, I'll, I'll skip skip over that because I'm having some noise issues in the background. But <laughs> there's a notion that Valens talks about of like water helping to make Earth less dry yeah. and therefore making it fertile so that you can grow things in the soil. That's lovely. Absolutely. Or um, earth giving form to water because water tends to be very formless and tends yes. to just adapt completely to whatever environment it is so that it yeah. can just spread out completely so that it's spread too thin. But if you put it in a container made of earth, like let's say a bowl, um, then water is suddenly shaped and given form. So even though they're, they have opposing oppositional qualities that are almost the antithesis of each other, they can be helpful in that way in helping to give each other form and to give qualities that are actually useful to each other through that rather than necessarily harmful. Opposite, yeah. And also I was just thinking, um, and this is because I was working on Fire Earth and Water again recently um, when I was doing the webinars. And when I came to water, it struck me that all water tends to go, no matter where it starts, it always ends up in the sea. It's always, it struck me, it's always seeking unity of some kind. And, and I thought about the three water signs too, in their own way, each seeking unity in different ways somehow. And, but once it gets to the sea, it then goes back up and then comes back down somewhere else and then seeks, it's always looking for, I'd never thought of that before. And I couldn't think of any other element that is seeking unity in that way. It was a new idea in some way. And the pain of being watery and not being able to get that unity. Sometimes the unity is with an idea, but sometimes it's with a group or a person or a, a or God, you know, whatever it is. But it's that wanting to uh, find, go back to something almost. It's almost like wanting to go back to something in a way. Um, and it comes sure. down through the earth. And how does... Um, how does he say about air? Because I loved that articulation of earth um, with water, but how does he say air does with fire? Do, do you remember? Um, so I don't have the exact quote, but on I, I summarize it on page 264 of my book where I give sort of a summary of what Valen says. And what I wrote there was um, in my book, Hellenistic Astrology. Yeah, I've got it over say there. Yeah. He says that fire and air intermingle with each other since they both rise upwards. And in the process of doing so, fire, which is hot, is supported by the more mild temperature of the air, which is cold, while at the same time the air is warmed up by the heat of fire so that it does not become overly cold or frigid. Mm -hmm. So what he's saying is they're making each other more temperate. Uh, and temperance is, in some authors like Ptolemy, is actually their basic definition of something that's positive and constructive versus something that is negative and destructive is that extremes can be unstable, whereas that which is temperate can be more stable and more conducive towards um, maintaining something in the long term. Yes, and you wouldn't think of fire on its own as temperate in any way ever. Right. So, yeah, but but when, when those, I almost want to say images, um, I think of fire on three levels, I suppose. I think of the imaginal plane as the highest plane that Corbin, Henri Corbin talks about, then the imagination, and then fantasy. And there, there are like three different levels of, of where one can go, you know, in with the fiery part of oneself. And, mm. 
and they're probably most easily articulated, uh, most easily expressed through air. Um, and, and yet I've known, um, when I see a, a, a combination of fire and earth, very strong, I always am interested because in Africa, I knew, um, I knew some people, different people with it. And it, when it's creative, it's amazing because it has to take this image and put it into and make something out of it in the earth. And so a lot of the people I knew in the bush, the houses they built for themselves were extraordinary because, and you, they would tell you from one season to the next, I'm now going to do this and this and this. And then you'd see them do it in a way that was extraordinary, but it's not a comfortable, easy combination, you know, fire and earth, but, but the, the, the creation of it is absolutely wonderful. Yeah. Mm. And the understanding of somebody with earth, with fire and water, it's not, again, not comfortable, but they, but if they're conscious and, and working with their, themselves, their ability to understand something about life that goes beyond the, the neat little, you know, clean little way we'd like life to be. They, they've, they've felt everything and, and, and experienced so much that is, not on these rational levels somehow. Um, so the, I always find the uncomfortable things are the most interesting. They're just a drag if you want to be comfortable somehow. Right. So let me see what I'm trying to think of other, if we should touch on other underlying qualities for each of the four elements and what their primary natures are, or if we should focus on I don't know, contrasting the signs of the zodiac in order to to try to approach the elements and what this what they mean in the context of the actual signs. Yes. Um, do you have a feeling like, for example, like we could talk about earth, for example, being a very tangible quality, um, whereas you were talking about water and its tendency to unify things yes. and to bring things together? To seek unity. Yeah. I was thinking about the water. Um like if you it's hard to get away from like it's hard to get a, it's harder to get away from a water parent if you put it that way because the water the cancerian will create a container in which they want their family to stay you know there's a, that unity thing and it's hard to get away so they i always think of cancerians as creating containers in which you will feel familiar i'm not going to say safe necessarily but familiar and sometimes people don't want to get away from the familiar because it's scary, you know, somehow. And then, but Scorpio is a whole different thing. It's hard to get away as well, but it's hard to get away because your connection is so hidden and, and real that the, the Scorpio connection is at that place where you are most, I almost want to say vulnerable, but it might not be the right word. I don't think that's it's where you where you are most hidden, I always think of it as where the, the, the completely hidden part of yourself that the Scorpio touches in one way or another. And if you leave, you'll never, you won't be seen at that level, you know, for good or for bad. And it's hard to get away. And then with Pisces, you want to get away. You don't want to get away. You want to get away. You don't, the, the, the feeling of being, the feeling of being accepted, not seen necessarily, but accepted utterly is the ultimate of Pisces planets when it works that, you know, when it's working, it's like you're utterly, absolutely accepted and seen for whatever you are. And so there's the sense of being 
I suppose your your whole self is is caught up when you're with with when you're connected deeply to to water people. You're it's almost as if the the part of you again it's part of you that's hidden, you know. Whereas if you take uh, if you take fire, it's the part of you that manifests that's loved, not the part that's hidden. So mm. you sit you're sitting with a water sign and you're you're held in a particular place and you're sitting with a fire sign and you go together to a particular place. So there's right. So, so water tends to envelop whatever it's around and to conform to it. I guess that's one of the underlying principles or qualities is in enveloping, but also a sort of conforming or adapting it's adaptable. Ah, that's interesting. Ah, like I'm trying to think of an example of that. Like if you have like a bucket of water and you like drop something in it, the water will be displaced and will like sort of move around it and conform to whatever that thing is. I don't know if that. I I just think I think what I'm seeing is that that when you are close to water, it touches something in you that is unworded and unseen and it touches it at a level that when you leave, you're left. You're 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 almost the feeling. It's like you can be abandoned almost because you've been touched and seen, uh, experienced so deeply that it's hard to leave. And I would say with cancer in the container, and you know, but it's hard to leave that atmosphere of 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 being seen so pro so deeply in a way that other people don't see you. Mm. So I don't, I don't know, I don't know about the conforming. I just know it's a, you, you, and you're, you're touched in a particular way that's very, very private. I think with water. Yeah. Whereas okay. if you think of air, you know, you have conversations, you connect, you share, but at a such a different level, the water level, there's no words for. Unless it's poetry, right. yeah. So there's, it's almost like there's an emotional component to um, to water um, in its connecting of things, whereas there's more of a, an emotional or let's say a feeling way of connecting things through water. Whereas with air, it's also uh, something that's conveying something, but it's conveying more like information or ideas mm. or thoughts or mm. words. So it's also um, got that sense of of conveying something, but all, but doing it in a, I guess, a colder sense, or which is more of an intellectual sense rather than in a feeling sense. Like I would say, a cooler sense, if cooler, I put it that okay. way, rather than colder, because colder has immediately made me have a judgment about that. But it's cooler, mm -hmm. you know, and it's um, it's like that. I'm just thinking in the in the morning that. Uh, the air signs telling us what exhibitions we must go to on Friday because we're going to an exhibition on Friday um, at the British Museum. There's an exhibition of Troy, and no, 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 but you must go here and you must go there. And yes, yes, have you been? And have you been? And have you been? And it, and it, you said the word information. It's sharing and expressing um, information, whereas the water, it's connecting, touching something, and often it's touching something that was was part of you as a child, because there's something about memory in water as well. And so yeah. it touches something very deep. And that goes back to before you had words. Yeah. And sometimes it's painful and sometimes it's beautiful, but it's 
touches that, whereas air is touching now. You know, the possibility is right now, what's going on now. It's, it's right here and it's, it is, it's cool. Yeah. I like that uh, as water being that which is without words. Yes. Um, I think the only air is I, much more music, wordy. Music, uh, I mean, Proust, of course, I used him. I was looking at my books because we were talking last week, and I used Proust, whom I loved. You know, I mean, I only read the, the whole of the first volume, but I didn't read all of them. But, I, but his whole thing about memory, he got me into the understanding something about it that, that, that water takes you back to pre verbal. Well, he didn't say that, of course, but I'm just, but to, to, to the time when you were nothing but feeling. Nothing, just just feeling and safety, you know, safety and feeling were everything it was about. And so water either brings you into a water person either brings you into that place of safety or makes you feel <gasps> very unsafe, but makes you feel. And the difficulty in our culture is feeling is not, you know, you know, you're supposed to be fine all the time. So it's difficult. How do you, you have to have places. I always say to my water clients you must have time where you feel all the emotions that came through the day so that you can sleep well so that you you must give yourself space to go through the feelings and let them go back to the ocean somehow otherwise you they build up and build up and the smallest thing can can uh have a storm you know just because there's been too much feeling un un um let's say unreflected somehow something about reflection and water as well it requires reflection mm, i like that reflection okay that's another good keyword yeah um so contrasting all of this with air um which tends to be more intellectual which really comes out like i'm thinking of different ways that people express like nurturing because this is where this comes out often in astrology is how people with Let's say a lot of water sign placements might relate to you if you come to them with a problem yes. in maybe being more empathetic or having an ability to emote or um, just be there, be present with you on an emotional level versus like, let's say you're talking to somebody with a lot of air sign placements and they might have a tendency to try to intellectualize to understand the emotional you. thing. Yeah. Yeah. Help right. you understand it. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. And the, I mean, yesterday I I was going through something and I spoke to two people and they said, how are you? I said, ah, and the earth sign tried to help me what to do so I could feel better. Okay, and the so water they tried to give sign, you like a practical advice for what you should do? Exactly. And I ended up going, oh. and the, even though I love this person, but and the, the Aquarian, but with lots of water, with... Um, just said, oh, oh mm, mm. and afterwards I said, how do you how do you manage not to try and help me understand? And she said, I learned that uh, I learned that from you a very long time ago. It doesn't work. So what she'd done is she'd gone straight into her water self to listen to me moaning, and then by the end of the conversation we were laughing about things and enjoying ourselves. And that's what I love about that water. You can go there, and then you can come out. And you know, go somewhere else. But you have to. I think you have to be able to have the courage in a culture that doesn't honor emotions in the same way as some other cultures do, to be able to dare to feel the feelings, so that you can have compassion. And perhaps compassion has to do with washer. You know, yeah, plant, yeah. Com 
compassion as a as a water trait. I could see that. Yeah. Um, and and something we didn't mention, which also comes from the Stoic theories, is that um, earth and water are more quote unquote passive elements, whereas fire and air are supposed to be more active elements. Um, which you might, in a modern sense, associate with like introversion versus extroversion, perhaps if that's applicable. Yeah, I don't know if that's. I, I'd have to think about that introversion, extroversion, but I think that's probably true, because an air person who's in a group of people and doesn't have a good conversation will probably suffer more than an earth person if the food is good. And the atmosphere is good. They're okay, you know. More about it. Not just the sun. I'm talking, but I'm talking about a lot of planets. You know. So, I think air needs the the communication somehow, um, and and um, and the contact. And so, to I mean, if I'm dealing with with airy people who are shy because of other things, I'm always thinking about how. To help them learn to articulate themselves in a way that they can be in communication with other people, because if other things get in the way of that ability to communicate, that's very hard. Those air planets are about communication, as far as I can see. You know, um, there was a, um, a quote I, I used to have on my diaries, and it was, "The depth is on the surface." I think it's um, Yeats that says it. I think. Somebody said it to me years ago, and I just loved it, um, having planets in Gemini. I loved that you can have a total, I love having a totally superficial conversation in a queue at the airport. And yet when we get to the thing, we've, we've actually talked about things that were deeper by talking about things on the surface and the, mm. the combination of that. And there's, there's something about each of the signs, like Gemini, Talk about anything. The, the only thing that you, the only crime really for a Gemini is to be, to, for somebody to bore you, you know, go on and on, talk at you rather than with you. Um, but Libra has to learn to. It's it's different. It's almost like it has to learn to the dance of communication. That mm. that not to give itself totally to the other person. To learn to how to go back and forth. And once it learns that, it's very satisfying. And I always think of Aquarians that. Like, the, it, you know, if an Aquarian is feeling edgy or agitated, all they have to do is go down to the shop, have a conversation with the stranger behind the counter, come back home and it's okay. The need to be amongst people that you haven't had a conversation with much before or who's out there. So there are three levels of, of, of conversation or of interaction, let's say. And I, and, I, and I think, I don't know, do you think they always need to be learning things? I'm not. I'm not sure if all three of them. Um, yeah, potentially, but maybe in different areas. Like Gemini is more like learning facts or learning small, discrete things and communicating them, especially or languages. Yeah, languages. I always like a lot of. So I have several friends that have like the Moon in Gemini, and they have a way with languages. And I'm yeah. always very much um, am jealous of their ability to pick up new languages or yeah. learn languages easily as a result of that. So there's yeah. that component with Gemini with. Libra, it seems like it's more social and learning social cues and being like masters of social cues in some ways. Oh, well, that's interesting. Yes. Whereas Aquarius, I often think of um, Saturn as the traditional ru ruler and their ability where they can sometimes excel at like community organizing or, or organizing a group of people around the same message or around a similar like ideal or goal. 
Mm. And also the Aquarian thing, I think I, I'm again going back in time, probably about 40 years ago or something, and a young Aquarian said to me at a gathering of people, the sun or something, said to me, you know what I'd like? And I said, what? He said, I would like at some point to have one, to, to speak at least one sentence or one conversation with every single person on the earth. Mm. And I went, doing, you know, the, the love of the other, the one out there. And you're right, of course, it's about the community as well. Mm. Um, and they're often, it's often with lots of planets in Aquarius, it's often easier with strangers uh, or with people in the community than it is with intimates, the need to have air, ah, to be able to breathe, you know, beyond the, the, the home. It's so not water, you know, in that sense. Sure. So yeah. it's um, social. And, and one of the things that's interesting about all of these is you can also get a much clearer idea of some of them by contrasting it with the opposite. Yeah. So Aquarius as the opposite sign to Leo yeah. Yeah. and the, the air sign of Aquarius and its social tendencies versus Leo as a fire sign and its creative tendencies, but also its focus more intensely on like the self. Um, as its primary locus or like reference point, as opposed to maybe Aquarius, which is more focused on the community of of others. Yes, that's interesting because I had a conversation with um, a WhatsApp conversation with somebody in in another country, a younger person, and she had a alter, a, a difficulty with somebody. She's a Leo with Moon in Aquarius. And she, this person hadn't done right, you know, the right thing, and said to me, please. So I just wrote a few words about how that person might be feeling in the community because of X, Y, and Z. And she wrote back immediately, well, I mean, the next day, because she's in another time zone, and wrote back and said, I got it. Thank you. I got it. And I've noticed that with her. She does, you know, the Leo thing is very strong. You've, this is the right way and it's, this is the good way. And, you know, I am, I, I think of Leo as the heart, as the fire in the center of the hut. You know, the, these wonderful African huts, they were, they were quite big and in the middle was a fire. And I think of Leo like when the fire is the right height, everyone is illuminated. But if the fire is too low, everyone's cold. And if the fire is all about me, 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 you know, too high, everyone disappears. But when a Leo has the right illumination, the heart, their heart is in the room. Everyone is illuminated in some way. And uh, but her fire had gotten too hot somehow. Mm -hmm. And then giving her reasons of why this person might be out, the air took it, and then she came back and and was fine again. And it's hard that combination, I think, because one is so here you know this is the way it is and the other is constantly needing to be attentive to all of the people in the community somehow um, but when it works it it works of course like when the, these oppositions when it suddenly works it works beautifully because then she could give her heart again you know yeah yeah i like that and and also fire uh, naturally when well maintained or at like a okay um level naturally attracts people around it and people naturally congregate around it so that it becomes like the locus or the center of attention just as a result of being itself or yeah, expressing exactly. itself naturally. Yeah, absolutely. And particularly Leo, I don't know why for, for me it is the center of the, 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 the not it's not a hut, I can't remember the word we used to use for it, a lapa, the lapa. Anyway, it's the center of the round 
home somehow. But but Sagittarius is interesting. It took me a long time, I suppose, to get. I mean, Sagittarius is a whole different thing because it's always it's on its way. You know, it's it's. I mean, I think of it as the philosopher, the lover of wisdom, the understand trying to understand something. But it's also it's the priest and the mm. that which is sensing that which is beyond the density of time and space and it mm. and trying to bring it down and the difficulty is when it stands on a high horse and knows you know and preaches and everything but when it doesn't do that it it brings you into contact with that which is beyond your understanding you know mm. that and 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 operates as the i say the priest the the mediator between the invisible eternal and and the density of time and space and i most something about sagittarius in general that's quite it's a visionary i suppose and there's something about it that's quite they don't i i think of them as that you know you can take a balloon and put it push it under the water but as soon as you take your hands off it'll always come up mm. it they don't they come they come back up easy they they do have a philosophical something happening inside. Um, what does my friend say? Um, oh, there's some cliche. I've got a friend and he's got five planets in Sag or four planets in Sag, and he's always coming up with these sentences um, to keep you going, you know, somehow. Um, and, and in an amusing way, which is which is also lovely. Yeah. Yeah, and and how I'm trying to think then. So Sagittarius is up as a fire sign, is opposite to Gemini as an air sign, and the way that they contrast because yes. Gemini can be much better at just conveying information and talking, and yes. sometimes even talking on a surface level, whereas Sagittarius seems like it's more focused on big picture type yeah. things. Yeah, and Ge Gemini, um, it's like. You always want to say Gemini gives the information and Sagittarius turns it into something that has meaning mm. one way or another, whether you like the meaning or agree with the meaning or not, you know, that's a whole nother thing. But it's been there. You know, it's on its way there. It's been there. It's going there. It's um and Gemini's here in the neighborhood. You know, I, I suppose now I'm suddenly seeing them in terms of the houses. Uh, I'm seeing third house, ninth house, so the neighborhood. You know the neighbors for the, the third house. I'm connecting up the Gemini with the third house, and and on my way in a ship somewhere else, you know, or a plane somewhere else, um, and only Gemini without. I suppose that maybe there's something about when you have a lot of planets in one sign, you do, you almost have to go to the other place to keep yourself balanced in a way, even if you don't have planets in that other sign. So a Gemini who doesn't look for meaning ever. Not such a good thing, and a, mm -hmm. and a Gemini and a Sagittarius who has these ideas but isn't about communicating, right? Like the the philosopher that goes off in the woods to meditate for like forty years but never comes back to share That's, what they found. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So the all maybe the alternatives, the opposites are there, um, so that one there to be the the bringer back or something or the bringer into the. Um, I always think of oppositions, they really do have to do with struggles with other people, where squares really are struggles with yourself, you mm. know, somehow. But the oppositions, they are like having a conversation with the other element. Uh, and it keeps you it keeps you sane, perhaps. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. Nowhere is that clearer than with like the first house, seventh house axis, where you have Absolutely. your 
rising sign and you have the element that dominates your own personality and tendencies and characteristics, but then you have the seventh house and the sign on the descendant yeah. with its opposing elemental quality that dominates your relationships or sometimes the, the types of uh, individuals that either you are attracted towards or attract yeah. towards you. Yes, I, I like that opposition too. Um, because I always think, um, I think I, I keep thinking I must do something on the ascendant-descendant axis just because I want to get back into thinking about it. Because you have no idea what other people see, I think, with the ascendant. You have to really work to see what it is other people see. So often you don't know why people either like you or don't like you because that first house, is it comes, it's there, you know. But I think of the seventh house as the the, the way you set up your drawing room. If I use English language, you know, um, English's way of saying it, or the living room, or whatever you want to call it, and people who come in to that place and can be there, then you can communicate with them. Whether you get intimate with them or not depends on what happens in the eighth house, you know, that whether you go through the door on the other side of the room. But the seventh house seems to be the way you, you know, people come next to you, and that's what they feel. That seventh house energy. It's the, you know, how you've set it up in some way or how, and it's the opposite. It's there to teach you something about how to be yourself and other, yourself and other, yourself and other, not just yourself and not just other. Yeah, hard, yeah, hard to learn, but important. Yeah, and it raises a question that I sometimes still wonder about, which is how much those qualities in the seventh house, like a, let's say, especially if a person doesn't have any planets in the seventh house, how much are those qualities that are already inherent in the individual versus how much are those qualities that the individual may lack but may import into their life? So there's one of those common concepts that astrologers have in modern astrology about if you have an, an excess of elements in one set of signs or more importantly, if you have a def deficiency or a lack of elements, uh, planets in certain elements, then you might import or draw people into your life yeah. that have those placements or have that element dominant in their chart in order to somehow balance out things in your own life. Absolutely. I agree completely. I've seen that again and again with um, um, couples, you know, mm -hmm. very little of this, a lot of that. And, and that. Uh, it, like a relationship, no matter how long it is, there's always that which you have to struggle with. It's part of the whole nature of it. It keeps you sensitive to each other. But that that difference is again and again. And when I was young, I'd see it and I'd think, Ugh, how are these people gonna, you know? And now there's nothing that I see that I can, I know can't work if the people in there are wanting it or willing for it to somehow anything can work there's no aspect that you can't have this in a couple you know you can't have this opposition and you mm -hmm. you've just said something that makes me think um about something when when there's nothing of an element in the chart you know no water or no fire or no earth or no air and mm -hmm. when there's one because people often say uh, a friend of mine said it years ago and I, it was the first time she said oh i have nothing in earth i said you've got pluto in virgo she said oh that doesn't count it's an outer planet I said it's incredibly, and I started watching. And when you have nothing in a sign, it's interesting. My experience is that either you're very good at that element and it happens naturally, or you're very you're not good at all. It's it's sort of extreme. So I know people with no Earth who are hopeless 
And I know people with no earth who, I don't know how they do it. It's not the way everyone else does, but the way they build gardens or homes are just absolutely beautiful. So there's, a, there's that. And when you have one planet in a sign, no matter whether it's personal or impersonal, that planet has a huge voice. It's like, I always, I say it this way. It's like having one son and nine daughters or one daughter and nine sons. That one has, it's, it has, it doesn't show up all the time, but when it does, whew, it's got so much power. So I don't think nothing or one is the same. You know, um, and I think whether it's personal or transpersonal doesn't matter. It's still going to have its voice if there's one. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. In interesting. I like that. And um, so that brings up other placements. Like if you have seventh house placements, one of the ones that's always interesting to me is when like the sun is in the seventh house mm. and sometimes the person tends to find their own identity through relationships. And sometimes, especially initially in relationships, taking on sometimes too much or going to extremes, the the identity of sort of adopting what their partner likes, and that becomes part of their personal identity, or adopting elements of their um, partner's personality mm -hmm. before eventually balancing things out and finding themselves again eventually. Um, so that's probably tied up in some of this dynamic with the elemental qualities involved in those signs. Yeah, I've been thinking about that a lot lately because I have several friends in different countries who mm. have planets in the seventh house, and all of the ones I know are on their own. And mm. all of them at some point, you know, I'm talking about people in their 60s and 70s now, and all of them at some point were in relationship. And I asked one of them the other day, and she's got um, three or four planets in Taurus in the seventh house. And I said, you know, how it, how how do you have these planets in the seventh house? You know, and and because I've known her forty years or something, so we've talked of it. And she said, she said, I I didn't know. I gave myself away too much when I was young to other people. And one day I learned that I had to have a relationship with myself. And so that relationship has become very important. And she has friends who adore her and she loves her friends, but she loves closing the door and going inside and she's back in relationship with herself. And she's a yoga teacher. So her relationship with four planets in Taurus. And so her relationship is with the body that she is. And then I've thought about the other ones and they have incredibly developed relationships with themselves which surprises me because i would think with all those planets in the with planets in the seventh they'd always be in relationship to others but the ones that i've known have found a way to be in relationship with themselves and she's she's got chances to be in relationship you know in a sexual relationship with others but she says no friendships are wonderful and sometimes partnerships and teaching are wonderful but my relationship is with this here, this. And I thought that was interesting. It's still about relationship, mm. but it's with the one she says is herself, you know? Yeah, that's really interesting. I love that. Isn't that interesting? So surprising. Yeah. Um, so let's see. So we touched on uh, Aquarius Leo, we've touched on Gemini uh, uh, Sagittarius, and then also Cancer course, Capricorn. Oh, yeah, that's a good one. That's a good um, one for now. 
yeah, that's one that's been super highlighted in terms of the transits lately. Oh. Um, so we have the water sign Cancer, and we have the Earth sign Capricorn. Yeah, I so I th yeah, I think of um, Capricorn as um, creating the structure in which the Cancerian energy can have children. You know, I think of the, the Cancerian energy as the cave mm. and the where the where the people are kept safe. And the Capricorn is the the structure that holds the community together somehow. And they they're they're so necessary for each other somehow. But the, the Capricorn thing for me, everything, it's about holding the world together so that the 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 vulnerable people the 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 babies can be safe and can grow and now with all these planets in capricorn under you know everything is so unsafe and i've never ever in all the years i've been doing charts had people ask me again and again do you think i'll be safe will i be safe will my son be safe will my daughter be safe will we be safe will we get our mortgage will we everyone is the, the safety thing is huge at the moment because the Capricorn world is not keeping us safe. It's under, it's breaking apart and reshaping itself in some way. You know, it's a period in history. It's just, nobody's doing it on purpose. It's a historical moment. But the sense of when, when Capricorn doesn't have this automatic, just making it work, quietly making it work, yikes, it's so uncomfortable. And it's each little person who's, you know, it's almost like the child is unsafe in some way in each person and then they get angry you know and resentful and all of the things that they are that everyone is getting yeah. sure so yeah I, I like that's so the idea of capricorn creating the structure a saturn ruled earth sign and the tangibility of it but also the forward momentum and, and the tendency yes. to, bu to build things uh that are concrete versus cancer being more of a water sign ruled by the moon and the more internalized or like nurturing tendencies of that, yes. um, especially as a water sign. Yes, yes, yes. I mean, you can't have, you, you can't have a mother and child unless you have a, a system in the community that makes sure they're okay. You know, they're so, I mean, I, I, I suppose first and seventh and fourth and tenth are so obvious, aren't they? That maybe because they're the the quadrant somewhere. Mm -hmm. But I suppose all of them are obvious if you start looking at them, how they um, are necessary to each other. So, and I mean, I've got I love Capricorns, and but it's how to get them to come back to the absolutely personal small self. Mm -hmm. um, rather than just being in that have to, should, must self, you know, uh, they're necessary for each other to go back and forth again. Even if you don't have, if you have planets in Capricorn, even if you don't have them in Cancer, you still have to go back to stay whole to the small self and see who it is and then come back into the world again. Yeah. Mm, okay. Um, one of the things that's interesting, I always think about the Saturn world signs, but especially maybe Capricorn is the tendency sometimes to the critical tendency of Saturn and a, a tendency to reject or, or 
exclude things in some yes. ways, whereas cancer is very much the opposite tendency because it tends to be much more inclusive and Absolutely. much more trying to bring things or people together in some Absolutely. way. Yeah, that's really interesting. And the, you can see the judgment in Capricorn. It's harder to see it in Aquarius, but it's still there. You know, mm. the I know, a friend of mine who's Aquarius says, remember, I know. <laughs> and, and the judgment is when people don't behave properly. Mm. Um, in, in the best sense, you know, according to their own ideals, you know, because um, Aquarius is very much about an ideal of how people should behave, should behave. That Saturn is so, you can see it so clearly in Aquarius. You know, I grew up in America as an astrologer, and therefore the, the um, um, Aquarius was Uranus and the Scorpio was uh, Pluto and you know I didn't have any of that those other ones and when I came to this country I was shocked and now of course I see the the Jupiter Mars and um, Saturn you know um, as fundamentally descriptive of Pisces of Scorpio and of Aquarius but it took me a long time and the first time I went to a lecture and they were talking about it I thought what are they talking about this is nonsense coming from America in the 60s where we didn't have any of that, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that transition with the modern versus traditional rulerships has been a really stark thing yeah. back and forth like over the past two decades with yeah. western astrology. Yeah. No, it's been nice that that's come in that hit all that history and to be able to put them together or to see, you know, it's like seeing another dimension of something and it's so obvious once you see it. I think mm -hmm. of the let's say the Pluto and the um, Neptune and the Uranus as some kind of field that those signs can tap into or mm. tap into a collective field in which they naturally tap into, but then they come back down into their own, I want to say personal rulership, but it's not, that's not the right word. Is it traditional rulership? Yeah, that's the right word. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. So that's Cancer and Capricorn. Uh, other ones are like Pisces and Virgo as a, another combination of earth versus water signs? Yes. They're so necessary to each other, aren't they? But then, of course, I'm very close to someone who's a Pisces with moon and Virgo. So, I feel like Virgo is the most practical of the earth signs. I don't, you, yeah. I don't know if that's going too far because obviously Capricorn would really want to compete for that position. But Virgo, and when we say practical, sometimes we we're talking about like the day-to-day -day needs and the small necessities to keep things going in a, in a very like tangible way. Yes, and very like things can be fixed. I mean, it's so it, day. It is Mercury, isn't it? It's literally day to day, and it's not like the Taurus can build a house and the Capricorn can hold the world together or not at the moment. But in general, you know, make it work the structure. But the Virgo mm. keeps it going. From day right. to day, keeps it going. I, I think of the, I remember I was in South Africa when I started doing charts um, for a living. And the sixth house was always about servants, always. When I came to this country, I didn't know what to do with the sixth house. I, I had no, when people had planets there, they didn't have servants, the people who came to me. So I didn't. And then I thought of the, the sixth house as the kitchen, the place where, where, where the food is made, where, where things happen, where you go and talk and you're there. And um, and I think of it as, you know, in, in London we have this on the tube, it says mind the gap, mind the gap um, between the train and the platform sometimes. Mm -hmm. And I think of that as the sixth house. 
It's where you mind the gap between the imaginal being incarnated in the animal body. And if the imaginal being is handles well the, the animal body in which they are incarnated, then they're healthy. But if there's a gap between the imaginal being out there and the animal body, then it's difficult. Um, and then there's something called ill health, let us say. And um, and Virgo's this is having sun in the seventh, six, fifth, sixth, six is different. But Virgo seem to go back and forth. That's why they're so practical. They the 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 idea and how it works. The idea and how it works. We need to have that. Okay, this is how it works. I agree with you. I think it's the most day down to earth, on and on practical sign of all in the in the zodiac. Must be nice yeah, to like have a, planets there. I was thinking like the the maintenance person, like mm. is a good example of like a Virgo type thing, which is uh, somebody that might be like a jack of all trades or that's good at yeah. the day to day details of what it takes to maintain or to fix something. Yeah. And Virgo tends to be because it's ruled by Mercury again, more focused on like small or local things, yeah. as opposed to Pisces, ruled by at least traditionally by Jupiter, which tends to be more far ranging or like big things. Yes, and and also things that um, like the, out there that I I always think of the compassion of Pisces, and it's not necessarily to the people right there with you. But it's out there. It happens to the beggars, you know. The it, it's the the ones. It just happens somewhere. It it appears. It, it it rises and falls in some way. It comes and goes. And the Pisces, I. It's almost like it 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 serves on a level that's invisible, quite often. And therefore, it doesn't get back the ego recognition that a lot of that some of the other signs do or in our age that is so popular you know because what it does it does almost literally behind the scenes or invisibly somehow um, right like that idea of having compassion like pisces would be like compassion for like the poor or for it. yeah um, let's say like the homeless or yeah. other broader things like that where they're motivated to almost like social causes but That's through it. an underlying sense of compassion yeah i think so i i had a i i've i had a client in africa that i learned something about pisces and he i still remember it because it was so surprising or shocking he was in his i don't know he was very to me he was quite old but i was young so i don't know he could have been in his 40s and um he had come from canada and he'd left his wife after of 20 years or something and he told me a story about why he had, and he was he had lots of planets in Pisces. And he said um, she had been complaining about the house and she didn't like it and didn't like it and didn't like it. So one day he went out and he bought another house. And one day at breakfast, he said she had been was complaining about the house and he said, it's okay, um, I'm, we're selling this house and I bought another house. And she said, what are you talking about? He said, well, I've sold this house and or I'm on the verge of selling this house. And and I bought another house because you don't like it. And she said, what are you talking about? I like this house. And he got up and he went upstairs and he packed his bag and he went to the airport and he left her. And he said, I've been doing things forever for her. And she never saw it. So I remember after that, to any Pisces, I would say you have to learn to let people know you're giving to them because often people don't know because you're giving in a way that isn't seen. 
And so you've got to be able to learn to, uh, to, to express it somehow. Otherwise, you'll feel resentful and over time just disappear. And I think that's Pisces, whereas I don't think Virgo does that. You know, I, I think I think it also has that it also serves, but it may be it's more edgy. So it's more likely to let you know if it's, you know, it's more articulate because it's, um, I suppose, Mercury like that. And the sure. two together are about service on all levels. Yeah, yeah that makes sense. Um, but it's more clear because uh, Virgo also has that tendency to like serve or to be helpful or to to want to give um, things. But Absolutely. yeah, you're right. Sometimes it can be more um, clear what the transactional nature is of it. Yeah. Whereas it's less clear sometimes with Pisces. Yes, and and you you can not notice that the Pisces has been just doing this stuff. I mean, I. I went away. We went away to, with with somebody, and she had Mercury and Venus and Pisces, and I, and she was an Aries, and and I had to keep watching because I I noticed because I knew those Pisces planets, and I knew that she'd be doing stuff, and nobody would notice. So I paid attention to noticing somehow, and then after we had a conversation, and she said it was true that she would do things, and she she did it in such a way nobody noticed, and then she'd feel awful, you know, somehow. So I, I think um, one has to, I suppose we all have to learn to, to be, to express who we are in a way that others can get it, you know, otherwise we're, we, ha we get very uh, misunderstood, hurt, isolated, all of that. Maybe yeah. part of it is that for Virgo, the currency is material, but for Pisces, the currency is more emotional in some way. Absolutely. And more, um, yeah. It, it touches, it does things that touch a part of you that you don't even know necessarily is longing or needing something. Yeah. But then that's hard to quantify, which might be an issue for all of the water signs. Is it a difficulty quantifying, quantifying that? In a, in a culture that um, thinks everybody should be fine all the time, absolutely fine, yes. It's difficult. I think it is more difficult perhaps for water than any other sign in our culture, because in our culture you have to be fine, and you and if you've got water planets, you you have all the you know that everything rises and falls, and it connects to things that are much earlier, and you're having to weave other collective feelings, your feelings, childhood feelings, all the time, and so the need to have a self-reflective space is probably I'm, is it more important than any other sign, but it is very important, I think. Otherwise, you can get so unseen, perhaps, is a way of saying it. I mean, the real self unseen. Right. So self-reflection is probably important, yeah. That kind of brings me to one we uh, could touch on at this point, which is Scorpio and Taurus. Um, That's where because... I was going too, in my mind. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. Okay, because you were, we were talking about like compassion as being one of the primary things that definitely unifies Pisces and, and even Cancer to a certain extent, but that's also true, but less a little bit more obscure with Scorpio. And yeah. it was there was a, like a word play in my mind where compassion uh, in Scorpio, part of that is like passion as one of the keywords that is related, but maybe more connected with Scorpio in some ways. Yes, the Mars thing partly, right? Yeah, uh, Mars and Scorpio. Um, I, I, 
have a image for Mars for I suppose Mars and Scorpio rather than Scorpio itself um, because I worked with someone in Africa uh, who had Mars and Scorpio and it's like you don't see it at all the Mars and Scorpio it's totally friendly and peaceful and never gets angry and everything and then one day something gets it and then like a a shark comes up and you never forget it you've been so whew, and then it goes down and back very calm again and i i've always thought of it that way it's survival but it doesn't show because perhaps i don't know it's water it's so surprising to me and the thing about the scorpio for me is that it 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 if we look at compassion the the essence of scorpio is that it without meaning to or meaning to depending on self-reflection it it knows the the this um i want to say the part in the other person that either needs to be renovated or eliminated if i put it that way that that it hits the the very survival thing in the other person mm. and so when it gets up and it doesn't know it quite often it's not conscious you know water isn't thinking you know and when it gets upset or hurt and other people often don't know that it gets upset or hurt. When they do, it comes out and you're just, and without knowing it, it's, it's touched, it's attacked. The most, the survival thing in you, the most, vul the, the most sensitive part of yourself. And so wow. I, I think it's one of those signs that really has to get to know itself because it doesn't know, you know, it's water. It doesn't, it, it doesn't know what it's hitting when it does that um yeah, and once it maybe. does know it's very healing it's it's extraordinary because it can touch something that is so hidden and needs to be brought out in another person that's why i think of detectives and psychotherapists you know maybe it's like the water that seeps into cracks and therefore knows where the weaknesses and yes. the imperfections lie yes. uh, but then that information can be used for good or for bad depending Absolutely. on yeah. whatever the other and, circumstances are. Yeah, and I think it's important with planets in Scorpio to perhaps, again, to know oneself, you know, really, because otherwise you have no idea how that's going to come out and what it's going to hit somehow. But by, you know, because it can also, if it does it with, let us say, with compassion, it touches something that needs to be, um, Either transformed or eliminated in in the system, you know. It, it, and it can happen. I'm thinking a very close friend of mine, Scorpio. He can come in this room and he'll say that chair is in the wrong place, and and he's right. It it even operates on that level. You know, there's something that doesn't work here. What is it? And and over time, I've learned to hear when he does that somehow. You know, so. It, it's it's a, a it has a killer edge, but the but it can also utterly transform. So it's one of those signs that needs to probably understand itself or its own effect on other people more than other signs, and then it has the ability to transform itself and others. And it's so opposite Taurus, isn't it? Yeah, I was just thinking about <laughs> Taurus as the op opposing sign, as a also a fixed sign, but an Earth sign. 
ruled by Venus uh, as opposite to Scorpio, which is traditionally ruled by Mars as a water yeah. sign. Yeah. Um, and these two, more than some of the other signs, it kind of thinks me makes me think of this concept that's been become really popular over the past few years, but it's actually not that not that recent, but it's the idea of like the five love languages. Are you familiar with this? No, I'm not. Um, it's just this idea that different people have different um, – it's from this book from 1992 by somebody named Gary Chapman, but it's become really trendy it seems like in the past few years. But they say that there's five ways to express and experience love that they call love languages, and these are words of affirmation is number one, acts of service is number two, number three is receiving gifts, number four is quality time, and number five is physical touch. And the idea is that different people have a tendency where they have their own personal love language, and sometimes their love language may be the same as or may differ from their partners, but that somehow by learning that, that you can learn what feels better to the other person and therefore create a better relationship. Um, but some of these are like already invoking some of the keywords that we found in some of these different combinations, like this idea, the idea of like words of affirmation or acts of service, for example, on the Virgo Pisces level mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. axis perhaps. But then when we get to Taurus and um, Scorpio, I think we get into the two of these. One of them is like receiving gifts and the oh. other is physical touch um, because it seems like Taurus and Scorpio, Taurus especially because it's an earth sign, tends to be more about physical yeah, physical things like that which yeah. is physical and that which is tangible as an expression of love or affection. And the thing about receiving gifts is interesting because somebody taught me once, um, I'd given a lecture and they came up and said nice things and I said, oh, thanks. And, and my friend said, no, when somebody offers you a gift like that, you listen. She said, when somebody's, because I, she, I was just learning to lecture and she was, um, I said, you've got to help me learn how. And she said, and she, that's what she criticized because she said, she gave you a gift. She praised you and you, and you just, you didn't accept her gift. So when somebody says something nice to you, you listen. It's a gift she's giving. And I thought that was very powerful. Mm. But I'm interested in the Scorpio of receiving gifts. Is it? Yeah, I'm not sure. It's either because I could definitely see Taurus for receiving gifts. I could see Scorpio certainly as physical touch. Yes. But then there's there's certainly like an interplay between those two as like Mars and Venus ruled signs and yes. the interchange. I could see both of those as being applicable in some way. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. So t let's see what else. Taurus as a as an Earth sign ruled by Venus and. Uh, the physical, we've used the words like practical very much for other earth signs like Capricorn and Virgo. And there's certainly like a practical quality to Taurus, but there's also more of a, maybe more of a material quality than any of the other signs in some sense. In Taurus, uh, it's really interesting. Taurus seems to me above all things to want peace and just comfort. You know, let's just be happy together let's just be and intensity is the last thing it wants mm. and whether scorpio wants it or not it's the it gets there through an intensity you know it's alive through intense concentration through intense uh, interaction and it's not it's not necessarily comfortable whereas taurus is all about comfort mm. and scorpio even if it has other things in it it is not about comfort it's about 
something that hits the very fundament of something and bah, transforms it in some way. So it it almost I always think of it as um, a whitewater rapid, you know, one of those waterfalls, which whitewater rapids. You know, it, it can go peaceful for a period of time, but suddenly there has to be this intense interaction for it to be doing what it is natural. Whereas Taurus is exactly the opposite. You know, let's just have a really quiet time. And yet the two have a, a dynamic between them. Because if you only had this kind of perfectly fine and no volcanoes, nothing would ever change. And if you only had volcanoes and storms, Nothing would ever settle. So they're very fundamental to interactions, aren't they, to, to relationship? Because you need that going farther than is comfortable for intimacy. Right, the you know, depth of emotion. Absolutely, yeah. And, and for Taurus, you need the steadiness and you get used to the person and you have habits and you, you know, but, you, but to get to the Scorpio place of, of rebirth, you know, you, you have to go through something to get there. Whereas with Taurus, you just stay there and be there. And yet they're so powerful in, in their, it's such different, like Aries, Libra, Mars, and Venus, Taurus, Scorpio, Venus, and Mars, both about relationships, really, you know, and, and you, 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 to get that vulnerable, to have intimacy, you have to get very vulnerable so that you can be betrayed. You can't have intimacy unless betrayal is possible, if I'm saying it properly, you know. Mm -hmm. Whereas Taurus isn't about that. It's about something that you get used to and steady. And, and yet they're, without, they're, they're, they're ne necessary. Both are necessary for life um, or for, for, for relationship to keep moving in some way, to stay alive. Yeah, I mean, that brings up an interesting point that we haven't focused on too much, but just that both Taurus and Scorpio are fixed signs. And that's always going to be something that these oppositions share in common is the same quadruplicity. That's so true. Aries yeah. and Aries and Libra are, are also Mars ruled, Mars and Venus ruled signs and also have that oppositional quality of elements of fire and air, but they're both cardinal signs. Yeah. So there might ultimately be something that they the signs share in common and in, in the way that they approach things, which might be the basis of their reconciliation or their ability to reconcile with one another. Yes. Yes. Just so they of like yeah. Scorpio and Taurus both being fixed signs, for example. Yes. So that's the thing that makes them, in spite of fa the fact of being so opposite, it's the thing they both get. Because when a when a both are like when you when you're when you're in Taurus and you stay. You know, you're not going to run around. Once you're there, you're there. Right. And and once you're loyal as a Scorpio, you're going to be loyal. And if you're not, it's like a death. You know that you're so the intent. And so I think you're right. And and Aries and Libra, they're so opposite, but they're both cardinal, so they understand something about the constant moving. Mm -hmm. um, in a way, that's interesting. And yeah, then the I mean, mutables, of course. That makes me think because that in Aristotle, um, when he introduced the qualities. That was part of the way that he introduced them was the idea that the elements could turn into one each one another through the underlying qualities, and that the ones that shared some similar element could turn into each other more readily. So maybe this is the astrological equivalent of that, which is that we have these opposing elements with each of the signs, but they have the ability 
perhaps more easily to either transmute and turn into each other, or at least、mm. to find balance because they share that similarity and the same quadruplicity.、Um, not to mention being the same polarity or the same gender, whatever you want to call it, either、mm. masculine or feminine, or、yeah. you know,、uh, positive or negative, or what have you. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, because if you、um, if you if you like if you take say when a Taurus gets angry, it's really it's it's Scorpio. If you、right. see, I mean, they don't do it often in general. If there are lots of planets in Taurus, they don't have the, it's not their energy. That's not what they're going to do. But when it happens, everything changes.、It's、it、serious. stays that way. It stays that way. And when a Scorpio decides to stay, they stay. No matter what,、right. all the way. So, so there is a kind which of can, in, yeah, which can be like with Taurus. Like a, I think about like one of my favorite examples of like fixed sign heavy placements is like、um, George Martin, the author of the、um, the fantasy books、uh, yeah. that became popular recently, which I'm drawing a blank on their name.、Uh, Game of Thrones and those oh, old oh, books.、I、Anyways,、yeah. he has a、uh, Taurus rising, and his ruler of the ascendant is Venus, which is in Leo, and he has such a, a dominance of fixed sign placements that he、um, has been writing. He's a writer, but he has been writing on the same computer that he got way back in like 1992 <laughs> or something like that, and he doesn't want to change because.、Mm. That system works for him, so、Absolutely. he just keeps writing on the same computer for three decades,、mm. um, even though it's probably less easy or less、um, safe in terms of backing things up. He found something that works for him, so he sticks with it.、Yeah. Um, and that's like a good example of like Taurus. And the, once you、yeah. find something, you sort of stick with it where you're、yeah. comfortable.、Um, with Scorpio, you have like a similar thing in terms of fixity, but it makes me think of like. Emotionally sticking with something, or an emotion that sticks with you and stays and is permanent,、yes. and that can sometimes be even a, a negative emotion, like holding a grudge or something like that. Yeah, like yeah. crossing somebody who then holds a grudge for like thirty years. Yes,、um, exhausting. Right, yes. which would be a fixed sign thing, but it's more of a water thing where it's it's something that sticks with you that's more emotional in nature. Yes, it's interesting when you're talking about the f- fixity. Really, is fixed, isn't it? If you, I mean, it's and especially, I mean, it is in Leo and Aquarius, but it's so obvious in Taurus and Scorpio. You know? Yeah, it has a more tangible quality in some ways. Yeah, yeah, it's almost like the first four are the elemental of, and then each one, each set after, are are variations on the theme. Of the first Aries, Taurus, Gemini, Cancer, and then Leo, Virgo, Libra, and they're they're variations almost on the theme of the the primary ones of the first four. Yeah, I mean that's something I keep going back to as well, and it I think I think that's really clear in modern astrology in the way that modern astrologers articulate the elements that they're often all based on the first four signs, especially,、mm. and and I've been trying to understand if that's yeah if that's really the primary way to approach it. Um, conceptually, or or how how that works out exactly, like Cancer, for example, often being the way that astrologers almost archetypally approach all of the water signs. Is that what you're yes. saying? Yes, yes, almost. It's the the. It's almost like the.、Oh, I don't know. <clears throat> it's like it's the paradigm. The, the simplest way to describe water, fire,、mm-hmm. is Aries. 
the simplest way to describe earth is Taurus, you know, like that. And then you do them again, but and you articulate them in a new way, and then a new way, and then a, a, and a, the most sophisticated way of all, you might say, the most complex way of all, when you get to um, uh, Cap, uh, sorry, Capricorn, uh, Sagittarius, Capricorn, Aquarius, and Pisces. Then there, it's almost like more than fire, earth, air, and water. I mean, it's still fire, earth, air, and water, but it's not as primary as Aries is. You know, each one is more developed. Or I, I, I want when I get to the last ones, I want to say sophisticated in a way because they're about out there. Yeah. Maybe it has to do with the fact that the first four have to deal with um, like personal planets, like inner planets, like Mars, mm. then Venus. in Aries, then Venus and Taurus, then Mercury yeah. and Gemini, and then the Moon in Cancer. Um, obviously, you still then have you go through another set of personal planets with the next set, which is the Sun and Leo, um, Mercury and Virgo, Venus and Libra, again. and then Mars, and then Mars and Scorpio. But then after that, you start getting just all. Outer planets, yeah. yeah, maybe, yeah, maybe, yeah. There was um, something else um, it came and went. Another one of those sentences. Um, anyway, maybe it'll come back. I don't know. Are there any um, pairs that we completely skipped over? Like I'm trying to think. Aries, so Taurus, Gemini, Sag, Cancer, Leo. So we did Earth. Taurus, Taurus, Scorpio, Gemini, Sag, Cancer, Capricorn, definitely. Yeah. We touched. Did we start with Leo and Aquarius? I, I think we did. Yeah. Okay. Did we do yeah. Aries and Libra? Yeah. A little, little bit. Yeah. Yeah. The. Um, oh yes, I wanted to say something about Aries though. Um, when I was doing fire um, uh, originally, I, I remember having difficulty with Aries because I th I thought of fire as images, and and I said to my Aries, "Do you live by image?" My Aries friends didn't. But the image and the action are one with Aries. So mm. they don't have an image that then leads them to something. They and the image come together. It's so Martian. It, you know, like they they move with it. And it's almost not even there necessarily. They don't even operate from images. Whereas I think the Leos and Sagittarius is they do. They have Idea. Well, let's say Sagittarius images is not quite the right word. A sense of something, meaning, you know. But but in in Aries, it's it's. I I thought, I because I kept seeing it as image, and I thought they they move from something. It just and I called it sperm energy <laughs> because mm. it was the first sign, and it was pure Mars. Just go, you know, and 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 go and go, and and when you get to the creation. Something dies, you you disappear, and then the creation happens, and then once that happens, you have to go again. And I I always thought um, in those years where I was operating in terms of reincarnation, if I have another incarnation here, I want to be an Aries because I've known Aries in their nineties, and they still have that absolute energy of yes, go somehow, mm. and it's pure life just coming in and ah! you know it's, it's so. Alive, and then opposite is okay. Now we learn the dance. Now we learn how to move. Now we, we, you know, and and everyone is like that. That to have a relationship of any kind, you have to know how to be this self, and to honor the other, and to mm. be this self and to honor the other, back and forth. So, uh, right. So Libra is the not just oppositional quality, but the contrast of not just. 
what pushing forward on oneself. I'm trying to think of how to articulate that and what Libra as an air sign brings to Mars or how it opposes it in some way. It's interesting. I I've gone off slightly because I suddenly had an image, and I remember um, thinking that Libra has. Is it? Am I seeing it clearly? Let me just see. Yeah, I was thinking of it as Moon and Libra. That's right. I always have. I learned it from somebody who was in his eighties. He was fabulous, and um, I watched him, and I noticed that I said, you know, frogs have two sets of eyelids. And um, one is the ordinary kind, and another is an invisible. They come over when they're underwater. Mm. And I thought, oh, that's Moon and Libra, and maybe it's Libra in general, because when things get too intense on the outside, this other set of eyelids comes across, and something in them sort of goes quiet and disappears a bit. And then when things settle down, they come out again. Um, and whereas Aries is out there, just, you know, it's alive when it can come out there. And Libra is is Libra energy is alive when when the dance is happening. It's not just, it's not me, it's not you, it's it, the dance itself somehow. But I always think of that with my friend, um, that his he got this other set of eyelids when anything got too intense and when conflict was around. And then he'd disappear for a while and then come back when it became quiet again, when it became harmonious again, when it became uh, appropriate, when things were appropriate again. Yeah. One of the things that's interesting about Libra, though, is even though it's a Venus ruled sign, it can sometimes be in acting as a counterbalance against Mars. Just it can push back just as hard, and it yes. can be just as um, oppositional or um, sometimes like contrarian. Um, is a is an in interesting tendency with Libra. Um, like for some reason, I sometimes run into. I feel like a lot of skeptics who have heavy Libra placements oh, that um, will push back on an on an idea, and that in and of itself becomes what defines them in some way. And I, I often wonder if it's through the Libra and the air placement, sort of like cooling off the fire placement, represented by the almost like singularity of um, Aries. Oh, that's interesting. I must look. I must look and see. That um, I always think of Libra as the in love with the good, the true, and the beautiful according to their own standards. Mm. And so, if you're expressing something that isn't according to their idea of the good, the true, and the beautiful, mm -mm. Venus has a temper too. You know, she's not only a kind of gentle little creature. She goes after. She knows what she wants, and she knows what she likes. Do you remember when she says to Helen, um, when Helen doesn't want to go back to Paris? at some point and she says and she said but it's war and i'm causing so much trouble and she says you know i have loved you above all and you have the beauty because of that do not do um deny me or don't do what i say and you will find out what it's like to have my hate and i was that was in the iliad and i was shocked by that when i read it and i thought it's true that Venus and both in both Venus signs, they're both opposed by Mars in mm -hmm. both cases. So there is something of the opposite that can come in when in the Libra case, the good, the true and the beautiful is being betrayed. When the ideal of how things, how the, how things work, let's say is being betrayed. And, and I suppose with the, um, when somebody from the Taurus point of view, when, when someone's trying to take away, the comfort and safety, it comes up very, very powerfully. 
in both of those. That's interesting. Yeah. Right. Um, I'm trying to think if there's anything. Uh, obviously, we also have like the social component, which is what a component of all of the air signs. Libra is where it comes out even more as the like a plurality or two rather than just one as the first opposition between those two, which we already saw with Leo uh, versus Aquarius. But we get a similar dynamic with Aries and Libra, but in yes. more of a just you versus me type situation, especially or or uh, you versus I in relationships. Yes, and and Leo is more me versus us. I think. Mm, right. Yeah, me versus the the family, the group of somehow rather mm. than me versus you. Yeah, and it's interesting that um, that. Both the Mars and Venus ones are the first two, you know, and then that's it. They've done that, you know. Right, uh, and they're done. Yeah, and then they're done. Whereas the mutables are um, everywhere, you know, <laughs> across the. Maybe that takes us back to, and maybe that's part of the paradigm going back to Empedocles and the idea of these four elements and them being brought together and pushed apart through this, uh, these love principles of love and strife. Love. Yeah. Because that's exactly what Venus and Mars are. We have Venus, which is the idea of love and unity and bringing things together, and Mars, which is strife Absolutely. and um, separating things or pulling things apart. Yes. So maybe those four signs then as being the starting point set up the paradigm for the rest of the elements. That's interesting. And also in any relationship, if you get to a point where there's no strife, you lose something. There has to be the otherness. It's almost like to you have to have the you have to know where you don't to keep it alive in some way. And so mm -hmm. couples who end up just being little aardvark and munchkun, you know, and they go along and they turn into mush in some way. Whereas when they stay edgy at some level, the the it's almost like life still carries on in some way. You know? So there's almost a need for them to it's in, for them to be opposite on so many different levels. Mars and Venus, and I suppose Jupiter and um, Mercury the same. Th that the the facts and the information have to turn into meaning, otherwise they're endless and boring and nothing happens. But if it's all about meaning, there's no communication anymore. There's no interaction. So they they really do include each other, don't they? Somehow, right? And you can't have. The, the Leo hearth center, unless there there are people around it. Otherwise, the Leo can't be the Leo, you know. Right. Or the what's the point of building uh, everything or building a, the house in uh, or a skyscraper or something with Capricorn if you don't have people, people in there to live Absolutely. in it and to create create a home? Absolutely. Exactly the same. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. All right. I like that. Perfect. Well, I think we probably stop at seven thirty. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think we're getting towards the end of this. So, thanks a lot for joining me for this today. This is a very fun, like free flowing conversation, and we didn't yeah. really plan this like a lot. We both prepared a bit, but this yeah. um, went really well. You've actually done, in addition to your two books on this, you actually I wanted to mention recently did a series of webinars for yes. uh, MISPA, the Mercury Internet School of Astrology, where you did a full webinar. Lecture on each of the elements, right? Yes, I did. Yeah, I enjoyed it hugely. And I, I don't think, I mean, I started looking at my books again when you started talking about this. But I think when I did my 
my fire, earth, air, and water with Mispa, I don't even think I looked at the books at that. I just went into the new version of what I was seeing somehow. And it's so satisfying again and again to go back to the same things that you haven't in a while because you've gotten more experience and you're seeing it in a new way and the planets have moved. So you're seeing things in a different way as well. But I really enjoyed working, doing those um, element um, webinars for John at MISPA, yeah. Brilliant. Well, I'll put um, links to the books on the description page for this episode on the astrologypodcast.com website and okay. also below the YouTube video. And I'll also put links to where people can check out those webinars that you did on okay. each of the elements. Thank you. Um, and you have a website, which is just uh, darbycostello.co.uk. Yeah, .co.uk. Yeah. And I'll yeah. also link to that. Do you have anything okay. coming up or what are you working on now over the next year? Oh, yeah. <laughs> One thing after, <laughs> I'm doing things for MISPA and for Astrology University, little bits of things as I go along. And okay. am I traveling? I've been traveling so much, but I think, oh, yes, I'm going to that one in America. Are you going to that one in America? Uh, in, the ESAR conference, yeah, in Denver. Yeah, that's the next big thing, I think. And I'm going to Germany in early July and giving a weekend there. I often do in Hamburg every few years, and I'll, I'll be in Berlin as well, um, working a bit. And otherwise, it's – and the faculty, of course. I'll be at the summer school at the faculty teaching. Um, okay. This summer? And, yeah, this summer. And things um, – I don't know. I'd have to think. They're probably on my website. If I can't remember what they are, they're probably on my website. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, I'll link people to that, but they can do a, just a Google search for you, just darbycostello.co.uk, and they'll find yeah. your website with links to all of your classes and Various webinars things. and upcoming schedule and everything. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Thank well, th thanks a lot for joining me today for this. I really appreciate it. It was a real pleasure. I really enjoyed it. We did travel, didn't we? we <laughs> various places, in yeah, spite of I the fact that there are five planets in Earth. And um, is it three in water today? No, yeah, we managed to get fire and air going as well. <laughs> yeah, we got a moon in Gemini, which helped out. And yes. um, yeah, this was good. So thanks yeah. for joining me today. Um, it's a pleasure. And thanks everyone for listening to this episode of the Astrology Podcast. And we'll see you again next time. Okay. Thanks to the patrons who helped to support the production of this episode of the Astrology Podcast through our page on patreon.com. In particular, shout out to patrons Christine Stone, Nate Craddock, and Marin Altman, as well as the AstroGold Astrology app available at astrogold.io, the Portland School of Astrology at portlandastrology.org, and the Honeycomb Collective Personal Astrological Almanacs available at honeycomb.co. The production of this episode of the podcast is also supported by the International Society for Astrological Research which is hosting a major astrology conference in Denver, Colorado, September 10th through the 14th, 2020. More information about that at isar2020.org. And finally, also Solar Fire Astrology software, which is available at alabe.com, and you can use the promo code AP15 for a 15% discount on that software. For more information about how to become a patron of the Astrology Podcast and help support the production of future episodes, while getting access to subscriber benefits like early access to new episodes or other bonus content, go to patreon.com slash astrologypodcast.